You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. Thank you, Sam. That is very kind, very generous. It's good to be with you guys. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to be here. Um, as Sam said, we are, my wife and I are newer to uh, Maryland. We are recently coming from Rochester, New York is where we were most recently. So we do snow in Rochester. Let me tell you, um, the, the threat of snow was not a thing we were very concerned about in Rochester. Let me show you my family a little bit. Um, my wife, Lauren, and I, we have two boys right now. Grayson it just turned five uh, a couple days ago, and Lincoln is our two-year-old. He actually, this week, guys, on Thursday, he broke his tibia, his left leg, he was going down a slide with mom, got it caught as they were going down, spiral fracture, seeing the orthopedic guy uh, tomorrow. So we'll see uh, about little Lincoln. For right now, he's in a splint, and he's doing all right. He's doing all right. If you, give a, if you get a kid that age enough, Tylenol and ibuprofen, they can, they, they can get through anything. But my wife is due with our third baby in July. We're excited about that. We don't know the gender yet. We're hoping to match the casitas, see if we can do three-boy fam. We'll see if that... See if that works out, but we don't have a lot of say in that as it turns out. Um, we don't get to choose. But anyway, hey, I am excited to be here. I am at Bay Area, one of the pastors there. Um, but Sam has just been such an encouragement uh, to me in the short time that we've been here, gotten to hang out. Um, at least once a month we get to go to a, a lunch together. And it's been, it's been awesome. He's, so, he's such a wise person. I, the, I credit a conversation we had a couple of months ago with kind of getting my head back on straight with some things that I was going through. So he doesn't know it, but he's my, he's my free therapist. Um, once, once a month is all it takes with Sam. You guys get him every week, so you, know, you, guys, you guys should be really square away. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, it's an honor to be here. And, and I know you guys have been walking through the New Testament letter of Philippians. And so you've been going through that. You're in chapter one. And last week you talked about the fact that Paul is making his life declaration that I want Christ to be honored, come what may. May Christ be honored, come what may. Life or death, it's a win-win situation. The fact is, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that was his declaration about his life, no matter what he's going through. For him, he's imprisoned, whatever. He's facing his impending execution, all of that. Come what may, may Christ be honored. But if you're like me, there's a little bit where you can read a phrase like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think about that just like I think about something from Shakespeare. Like, wow, really cool sounding. Not how I actually live my everyday life, right? It sounds poetic. It sounds important. But it's not necessarily like my day-to-day grind in the midst of broken tibias and you know, pregnant wives and paying bills and day-to-day life. Like, is that really, how do I get there? Like, what is true of Paul that he comes to the place where he could write something like that? Because I feel like there's a huge gap between my everyday life and for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. There's, there's a gap there. How do I overcome the gap between who I am in this very moment and a person who genuinely can stare down death with no fear and live every moment of their life for the glory of Christ. How do I get there? How, do I, how could I be changed into a person who thinks that way? Well, today we're going to talk about how we could have an unlimited subscription to the power that God gives that brings life 
transformation. We're going to talk about how it is that God has wired us so that we can get to the place where someone like the Apostle Paul was. But in order to get there, I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine in college who, this is crazy, he was really good with computers, he was studying to be a computer engineer, which is what he is now, and he, he threw a series, he was in class, he was bored, he got this email from a restaurant that was offering an unlimited subscription to their food for a year. And he saw that, he saw that the deadline for like applying for this thing was coming up in like 10 minutes for some reason. I think this was like this one-time promotion that they only sent to college students. So he like real quick wrote some software, like attacked the server that was hosting this thing and won himself one free year of as much Olive Garden as he could possibly eat. A one-year subscription to carbohydrates, people. That is either amazing or terrible, depending on who you are and your aversion to gluten, okay? Because <laughs> for some of you, that would be a death sentence. I will say it was not good for his cardiovascular health, um, but it did make him very popular in the dorm. He worked out this whole system where, like, you could sign up on a spreadsheet for what meal you wanted on what day. He went and picked it up. Just an enormous amount of, like... Just everything that's on the menu, in particular breadsticks, can I get an amen <laughs> from Olive Garden? But that probably leaves you a lot of questions like, who would eat that much Olive Garden? And <laughs> what happened to this person long term? And the answer is he's probably going to be president of the United States <laughs> before he's done if he keeps up at that rate. Um, but I told you that story because I think an unlimited subscription, that idea, is something that humans are kind of enamored with. We're kind of excited about the idea of something that never stops. That's why we chase things like the fountain of youth, right? Or the idea of like a money tree is so like, wow, wouldn't that be crazy? We crave the idea of having no limit, no budget, just a bottomless source of the thing that I want most in life, which is, of course, Chick-fil-A, <laughs> right? Because I'm a Christian, and that's what the Lord would want, <laughs> is more Chick-fil-A. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Every time I want Chick-fil-A, it's Sunday. It's just like the worst combination of things. But anyway, we love an unlimited subscription. That idea is so powerful to us. And today, I want to show us that as Christians, we have and can have an unlimited subscription, a fully paid subscription to the power behind life transformation. The power that can bring us from being the person I am today to the person who could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we're going to talk about that power by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, another one of Paul's letters to a group of Christians, friends of his, in ancient Greece. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but don't turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Instead, turn to Exodus 34, okay? Exodus 34, not 2 Corinthians 3. Why is that? Well, let me tell you, in 2 Corinthians, if you're not familiar with the context, Paul is writing to a group of friends, again, who are living on the Peloponnesus of ancient Greece. These are friends of his. He's planted this church, spent a lot of time with them. And in this chapter, chapter 3, he is defending his right as their pastor, as an apostle, to be very bold with them in how he speaks. He's like, I'm allowed to speak with great boldness about what God says is true. And he's building his case for why he's allowed to be bold with these friends. But he builds his case by giving a little mini sermon in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He gives a little mini sermon on a story from Israel's history. But that story is found in Exodus 34. And if you don't know the story that's in Exodus 34, then 2 Corinthians 3 is not going to make any sense. It's going to be a little bit like jumping into the Harry Potter series at book 7. 
It's not going to make a lot of sense. You're not going to be tracking with the story. I personally recommend book three, book six, and book four as the best, okay, when you have time. That's for another conversation. You guys don't know me that well, so you don't know that I'm kidding. Okay, well, let's keep on moving. 2 Corinthians 3, we got to start in Exodus 34. So if we look at Exodus 34, we will understand what's happening in Corinthians so that we can unlock God's power for life transformation. But I will admit, this is probably going to take an extra sip of coffee, okay? I know you're used to Sam. He's a fast talker. It's actually definable that he talks about 100 words a minute faster than any other human. But on a good day, I can give him a run for his money on the words per minute. So let's jump in here and see if we can track with all this context. You guys are smart people. Take another sip of coffee and let's get into this thing. Exodus 34. In this part of the story of the Bible, let me catch you up. God's people, that's the nation of Israel, they have recently been delivered from slavery in Egypt where they've been for hundreds of years. And they are now camped at the base of a mountain called Sinai. And their leader's name is Moses, goes up to the top of that mountain and he meets with God in order to get their law, what's going to be their constitution for living as the people of God. But while Moses is up there, there's all the smoke and fire and thunder and lightning and all this craziness happening up there. And the people know, do not even touch this mountain or you will die. They're like, okay. So they're just waiting, watching all the craziness. And Moses just keeps on not coming back down. And it takes forever. And eventually they're like, look, I'm pretty sure he's dead. Let's just make a calf, a golden calf down here that we can worship to this God who's just delivered us. And they make themselves an idol. And God does not appreciate that. And the people of Israel get their first taste of what happens when the sinful humanity interacts with a perfect, holy God. And what happens is that lots of people die. Lots of people die. In fact, God almost wipes out all of Israel in this moment. But Moses steps in. He intercedes for the people. God relents from his wrath. But make no mistake, from this point on, the people of Israel have a healthy terror for coming into contact with God's glory while they are in their sinful state. They just watched 3,000 members of their clan die. And they'd like to avoid that outcome in the future. Understandably. But this creates a real problem for them because God's glory living in the midst of this people is the only thing that sets them apart from any other nation in the world. In fact, Moses even says as much in Exodus 33. He says, how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight? He's talking to God, I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? They've got to have God's presence. And so for the rest of Israel's history, whether it's in the tabernacle or the temple, the Israelite people are desperate for God's glorious presence to be living with them. When he is with them, it is a visible, physical demonstration that they have a relationship with the creator God. But having God nearby when you are being disobedient is to risk destruction. So it means that if they're going to have God's glory among them but not destroy them, they're going to have to come up with some kind of a system. So what are they going to do? What are the nation of Israel going to do? Well, the first thing that they have to do is they have to get God's laws redistributed to them because Moses got really angry when he saw the people worshiping and he actually broke the tablets that God had written the rules on the first time around. Moses discovers what every parent who has a kid and an iPad has discovered and that is that tablets are fragile 
Thank you. Appreciate that. It's early for that kind of a joke, but you guys are very gracious. Anyway, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. He gets the laws again. When he comes back down to reveal them, get this. This is crazy. His face is glowing because he was in God's presence. It's as if this bro had just been baking in radioactive material. Get the Geiger counters. They would be chirping. His face is glowing. And you might think, well, that's kind of cool, right? I mean, God's glory is beaming through the face of Israel's leader. Israel is not happy about this. Here's what they say in Exodus 34, 30. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. Why? Well, they know what happens when they get in touch with God's glory. They don't want another incident. So Moses comes up with a solution. We read about this here. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. By the way, we have the first reference here to a mask mandate. Um, Again, you guys are so gracious. Okay, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. The people needed God's glory in the camp, but they know we are not worthy of being near it. So the solution ends up being this, that God's glory, which they needed, God's glory needed mediation and limitation to avoid condemnation. God's glory needed mediation and limitation to avoid condemnation. What do I mean? Let's break it down. Well, they needed mediation. Okay, this is Moses' job. He stood in the gap between God and the people. Eventually, this job is taken over by the Levitical priesthood, the, the descendants of Aaron in in the nation of Israel, but there is always someone who's between Israel and God. The people don't go up to the mountain, Moses does. The people don't go into the tabernacle, Moses does. Moses goes into God's presence, he hears the commands, and then he comes out and he speaks to the people. He's a mediator, that's mediation. But that's not enough, because the glory doesn't just need mediation, it also needs limitation, and that's where this veil solution comes in. Because Moses is just perma-glowing. There's no indication that this went away for his face. He's not recharging every time he goes in to see the Lord. He's just getting more instructions. Moses is always glory glowing. And they are terrified, understandably, of this glow. So Moses, he uses a veil. It limits their exposure. Because they know the end result of too much glory is my death. It's my condemnation. So for their sake, Moses microdoses their exposure to the glory by using a veil, a limiter. He's the mediator using a limiter to avoid condemnation. But here's the thing. God's glory, both then and both now, it is not something to be trifled with. Frequently, throughout Israel's history, they choose to play games with God's glory. And each time they do, people die. God's glory is like a blazing hot furnace. It's powerful, it's beautiful, but do not get too close. So, that's the background, the context that you have to understand from Exodus in order for us to track with what's happening in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
Because what we have to understand is that Moses represents what's called the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is God's older arrangement with the people of Israel. And as part of that arrangement, we said God's glory needs mediation and limitation to avoid condemnation. Moses functions as the mediator. The veil functions as the limiter. And as long as the nation of Israel keeps this deal going, the arrangement works just fine. How does this connect with 2 Corinthians 3? Well, Paul in this letter is using the difference between the old covenant and the way things are in the new covenant to make his point with the Corinthians about being bold with them. He had said back in chapter 3 of the same letter, he said, God has made us sufficient to be ministers, which just means servants. We are servants of a new covenant. A new covenant. But what is the new covenant? Really, for that matter, what is the old covenant? Let's, let's answer that question briefly before we continue. What, let's talk about the covenants. The covenant, for the, just so you know, a covenant is just an agreement between two people. That's all the word means. And the old covenant is how God relates to his people of Israel. The new covenant is how God relates to all of us who are after Jesus. If you think about your Bible, this correlates to your old covenant, and, I mean, Old Testament and New Testament. Testament is just the Latin word for covenant, okay? So it's the same thing, Old Testament, New, new Testament. And this chart, I think, will help us understand a little bit of the differences between the Old and New Covenant. This is not like the most thorough thing in the world, and don't get too bored. I promise this will be helpful as we understand the passage. This is just for us to understand a little bit about these two covenants. When you think about the Old Covenant, the person that best embodies the Old Covenant is Moses. The New Covenant is best embodied by Jesus himself. The terms of the Old Covenant are the law of Moses. This is what you must do with the covenant. In the New Covenant, we actually have the law of Christ and that's written on our hearts, which are led by the Holy Spirit. This is a radically different set of terms. What's the means? How does it happen? Well, in the Old Covenant, it's animal sacrifice. That's how the sins of the people were passed over. But in the New Covenant, it's Christ's sacrifice that was once for all, for all sin. What's the result? Well, the Old Covenant resulted in death, condemnation, because humans were sinful. But in the New Covenant, we receive eternal life. And then finally, the participants were ethnic Israel. This was for a particular people group related by blood. But in the New Covenant, it's all of those who believe. That's why we're a family. We're in the New Covenant. And as you can see, there's a massive difference between these two covenants. And how is it that God can interact so differently with his people? Well, the answer for that is Jesus. Christ in our place, the entire old covenant and all of those animal sacrifices were a picture of what was to come in Jesus. He's the perfect lamb of God who died for us. He took all our sins on himself. All of those animal sacrifices were to temporarily cover the sins of Israel, but Jesus' blood covers all of our sins for all time for all those who believe. We now have access to God because the condemnation which the Israelites feared, and they should fear it, all of that condemnation has been taken on by Jesus himself. And so that fear of God's glory is transformed into a relationship. Our condemnation is gone in the new covenant. My friends, that is massively good news. In fact, that's the gospel. That's what gospel means, is good news. That's the good news. The gospel, Paul spent all of his time, whether in Philippi or in Corinth, declaring this good news, explaining the power of the new covenant to people who were both Jewish and not Jewish. The fact that Jesus had died for them. 
And in chapter 3, what he's doing here is he's explaining, he's using the old covenant and the new covenant, comparing them, leveraging how much better this new covenant is in order to make his point. He starts comparing and contrasting a little bit. We see this in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, if the ministry of death, that's the old covenant, that thing was carved on letters of stone. If it came with such glory that the Israelites couldn't even gaze at Moses' face because of the glory... We understand that because that's all from Exodus 34. He's saying, if that which was being brought to an end was so glorious, will not the ministry of the Spirit or the new covenant have even more glory? He's saying the old covenant was, was good. This is so much better what we have. And he uses that, that logic throughout this, these next like five or six or seven verses. He says, if this was true, how much better? this was true, how much better? And since we're doing charts, let me just show you a quick comparison that summarizes the next few verses. He says, in the old covenant, there was lots of glory. I mean, Moses needed a veil. But in the new covenant, there's even more glory. Man, in the old covenant, it needed to be mediated. It needed to be limited. But in the new covenant, we have unlimited access to God. The old covenant was resulting in condemnation because of human sin. But in the new covenant, we receive eternal life. Paul clearly thinks the new covenant is better. And he's saying, my boldness towards you, my friends, comes directly from the hope that I have as a servant of this new covenant. Check out chapter, verse 12. He says, since we have such a hope, such a new covenant hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses. He would put a veil over his face. He's saying it's directly because of what Jesus did that allows me to be bold with you, my friends in Corinth. I don't have to limit your exposure to God's glory because in this arrangement, you have direct access to that glory. There is no... Um, That's pretty amazing, but I do want to take a second here. And I don't want you to get too down on the Old Covenant, okay? I don't want you to be Old Testament haters. That is not what Paul would want. So let me give two quick disclaimers here on the Old Covenant. Old and new, when you think about those words, those are about timeline. They're not about value. That just means one of them is literally older. One of them is literally newer. Okay? When we say my old iPhone, we mean my lame iPhone, Right? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about just one of them is older, one of them is newer. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the old covenant, I came to fulfill it. So it's not bad, it's just older. And then second of all, that means its result is what's different. Okay, It's less glorious, but only in what it results in, not in its essence. The old covenant is not, God's glory is the same. His wisdom and power are the same. Old covenant, new covenant, they're on display for all time. One of them, the new covenant, leads to eternal life in Christ. So Paul is saying the new covenant is more glorious because of what it's able to accomplish. Don't turn into an Old Testament hater. Paul would not want that. But the new covenant does offer stunning promises. So the question that I think we should be asking, and we're thinking about a guy like Paul who says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We're thinking about, I'm a member of this new covenant. How do I, how do I become like Paul? How do I have access to this power of transformation? How do I get into this agreement? Well, Paul is going to give us the answer. We already know that he is a servant of this new covenant. How do we get access to this power? Well, in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18, we get Paul's 
amazing answer. Let me read this to you. He says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So that we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So how do we get access? Let's walk through this bit by bit. How do we get access to this covenant? He says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Okay, let's remember what we learned from Exodus 34, right? What's the veil? Well, it's the limiter that's on the face of the mediator. It prevents the people from being overwhelmed by the glory of God. But Paul is saying when someone turns to the Lord, that limiter is removed. I think we need to pay close attention to that sentence because Paul's doing something, some wordplay here that I think would be easy for us to miss. The word for turn can mean something metaphorical like change your mind or change your beliefs, like turn and trust in the Lord, but it also can sometimes just mean turn, like turn your body and face a different direction, okay? Paul is actually in this verse explicitly quoting from Exodus 34 where it says, whenever Moses went in before the Lord, in other words, when he turned to go in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil. And it's hard to tell here in English, but Paul is kind of riffing on that language from Exodus 34. He's interpreting Moses, the physical act of turning to go into the presence of the Lord, as a picture of what we must do today. In other words, in order to take part in this new covenant, we need to turn to the Lord. Just like Moses turned and entered God's presence, we turn our hearts and belief toward the Lord. And when we turn to face the Lord like Moses did, the veil is removed. We can experience God's glory with no veil, with no mediator, with no limiter. Paul is saying every believer in the new covenant gets the same privileged access to God that only Moses got. Once someone turns to the Lord, there is no limitation in their access to Him. They have unlimited access to God's glory. Another cool wordplay thing that Paul is doing is around this word Lord. Um, Whenever you see Lord in all caps like this, as you do in the Old Testament, that means it's using the personal name of God, the name Yahweh. The Creator God, the one God the Father. The one that Moses was turning to behold in that tabernacle. And when Paul says that we turn to the Lord, what he's talking about is the fact that we are turning to the Lord. Just as Moses was turning to the Lord, but there's a difference now in the new covenant, remember. In the new covenant, we have access to the Spirit. So Paul is double-clicking on the idea of who is the Lord, and he's equating that to the Spirit. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. In other words, Moses' experience with the Creator God face-to-face in the tabernacle or on Mount Sinai, that is the experience that we have with the Spirit in our hearts. That same Yahweh, the new covenant, gives us access to Him. We see the full glory of God via the presence of the Spirit in our hearts. What does that do to a person? What does getting all that access to God do? It says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
What we experience as a result of all that glory of God is freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from the need to be limited to God's glory. The freedom from the need for mediation or limitation. We are free from the need that Moses needs to exist. We need no Moses. We don't need a veil. When we turn to God by placing our faith, what he did through Jesus, we have unlimited, unmediated access to the glory of God through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Do we see how all this is working together? Let's look at these verses again. When one turns to the Lord through faith in Christ, the veil or the limiter of that glory is removed. And so now the Lord, not some JV God, not some limited one, the actual Yahweh God comes to us in the form of the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, we have absolute freedom, full access to God. And what this does to us is absolutely amazing. He says... So that we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are transformed into that same image. He's saying that we are in the position of Moses. We are fully basking in the glory of God. There is no veil. There is no fear of condemnation. Just full access. And the result for us today is the same as the result for Moses. Moses was transformed physically to having a glowing face. And we, like Moses, are transformed. That's the word for metamorphosis or an internal change with an external result. The glory comes beaming out of God and it becomes the mold into which we as Christians are poured. We experience a glorious transformation into the most beautiful thing on the planet, the glory of God. What was once a thing of terror for the people of Israel, something that they would cower before. For us who turn to the Lord in Jesus Christ, that glory becomes our very nature. We are changed into that same glory by the power of the Spirit. It's like as if the people of Israel wanted to go to the beach on this snowy day. They wanted to go to the beach, but the people of Israel, frankly, they needed an umbrella. They're like me. They need an umbrella. They need like full clothing, S200, and even at that, you're only going to get about one or two minutes of sun time before I need to go back in the shade. <laughs> and that's about all they had. But for us in the new covenant, because of the power of Jesus and the spirit in our hearts, we are out on the beach, high noon, no sunscreen, no sunglasses, no plans to go inside. The glory holds no terror for us. The condemnation is gone. We have unveiled faces gazing on the glory. We're transformed into it. How are we transformed? Well, he says that we are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. And this comes from the Lord. Our transformation, this tells us, is three things. First of all, it's into the shape of his glory. This is so key for us. We are not shaped by God into just the best version of ourselves. We are shaped into God's image. Our goal is to be like Him. We are also shaped from one degree to the next. In other words, this is going to be bit by bit, day by day, step by step. Our transformation into God's glory does not have a magic formula. And there is no microwave option, unfortunately. It's from one degree of glory to the next. And finally, it says it's a work 
of God's Spirit. And this is no surprise because you've been in Philippians. And so you know that we are unfinished. That he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion. In chapter 2, we're going to talk about the fact that it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good glory. It's always God who's at work in us. Of course it's God's spirit. It's not our job to manufacture transformation. We can't do it. Paul is never missing a chance to say, my unfinished people, God is at work. So when we turn to the Lord and we place our faith in Jesus, we become part of this new covenant. And Paul is promising we will be able to bask in God's glory. God's spirit will use his power to change us into people who beam with the glory of God a little bit more every day until we see God face to face for ourselves. This is an amazing promise. But I think what we recognize is that staring at the glory of God is honestly a little bit of a weird means of transformation. Right? Like, why would that be the method of our change? Staring at something. Well, I think it's because Paul understood this reality well, that what transfixes us transforms us. Or as Jackie Hill Perry likes to say it, she says, what we behold, we become. That is what's beautiful about an unlimited subscription to God's glory. It means that if we are transfixed by that, we'll be transformed into it. But it also is what is so dangerous about the distractions that exist in our everyday life. Because if we're honest, we are not typically transfixed by the glory of God. Whatever that means. We're transfixed by Minecraft. And our bank account. And our body weight, and TikTok, and our kids' sports, and the weather, and the Super Bowl, how many we need, right? <laughs> Some people are like, boneless? He eats boneless wings. <laughs> Don't be distracted by that, okay? But if those things, those silly things, if they transfix our hearts, we will be transformed into their image. If we're going to be transfixed by the glory of God, what do we need to do? Well, Paul gives us in verse 16 through 18 what our next steps are. He says we need to turn, bask, and transform. We need to, first of all, we need to turn. If we're going to be transfixed by God's glory, first thing we have to do is turn and actually see it. Turn to the Lord. And look, family, if you've never done this, maybe you're experiencing some of this, you're checking out East Point, and this is faith or church is newer to you, do not place your trust in your own ability to measure the glory of God. Because if you do, you will be like Israel, perpetually terrified that they are not measuring up, and rightly so. When you turn to God in the face of His Son Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, your need for a veil is gone. You will see God's glory with no fear of condemnation. Imagine a relationship with God that held no terror. That's what this church, this family wants for you. Nothing would give them greater joy than to talk to you about that. So we need to turn, but second of all, we need to bask. We need to bask in God's glory. We need to choose to take it in. Family, we have the privilege of access. We need to do what Israel could never do. They told Moses, Moses, put away the glory. You're killing us with the glory. We need to say, never look away from the glory. How do we bask? How do we take in the beauty of who God is? 
Well, we do it when we hear the voice of God revealing himself to us. When we get a greater sense of who God is through his word and his glory, how do we hear that voice? Hebrews chapter 1 says that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. We bask in God's glory when we take a look at Jesus. John chapter 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen God's glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So my family, we need to go into God's presence. We need to stare down His glory in the face of Jesus Christ and never leave. Become obsessed with Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Remain in Him. Abide in Him. And be transfixed by Him alone. If you do, and when you do, you'll experience the promise of this passage, which is that you will be transformed. What transfixes us transforms us. And the promise of 2 Corinthians 3 is that if we want to be people who say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, we need to be transfixed by God's glory. And then, when we do, the Spirit himself will ensure that we are transformed because what transfixes us transforms us. And look, it's been a privilege to be with you this morning, and I recognize we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> All over Exodus 34, we're talking about different covenants. The word transfixed was used a bunch of times. You're like, I'm not sure I was ready for that at 8.30 in the morning. But I hope that as we come to understand the scriptures better, which is what you get the privilege of doing here each Sunday as a family, that you'd be inspired this week to, as you better understand his word, be more transfixed by who God is so that you'd want to be more like him. This unfinished journey of believing that God, who's at work in you, will carry it to completion and transform you into his glory. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. We are grateful that you are willing to make us part of your family. Bring us into this new covenant with unlimited access to your glory. I pray that every day we'd be a little bit more like you because that's why you made us. In Jesus' name. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.